Hey folks, Adam here. I want to give this show a special intro since we're obviously in a special time. I, like many of you, am holed up in my house right now. I'm working from home. I got my dog here. I got my partner, Lisa. got my cup of tea. got my somewhat less professional podcast recording setup. Uh, and I'm trying to make sense as best I can of the COVID-19 pandemic that's changing all of our lives so drastically. Now, first of all, uh, I have to address this because people have been asking me what I think, right? People say, Adam, we, we watch your show. You're always debunking things. Are you going to debunk this? You're going to talk about, oh, is the media just overhyping coronavirus? And, you know, is it causing a panic that we shouldn't be having? And I just want to tell you so you hear it from me, if that matters to you, no, I do not believe that uh, this pandemic is overhyped. Uh, every expert in medical science, in epidemiology, in communicable diseases, these folks are telling us that we need to take drastic actions right now to reduce the spread of the disease uh, so that many, many more people don't die and then and that so we don't overflow the limitations of our healthcare system. And so we're acting accordingly, working from home, not getting together in large groups, not going to bars or restaurants, uh, staying inside as much as we can, going on jogs, but avoiding human contact as hard as that might be. And I hope that if you're in a position to be able to make those changes, uh, that you are considering doing so yourself, uh, because it really, really can make a difference in this time. And I also want to mention that there's a lot of folks out there who can't make those changes. There's uh, unhoused folks living on the street. Um, there's uh, workers who, uh, because of you know what their job requires, uh, cannot take time off work, cannot work from home, uh, either because they rely on those wages or because their job is just so damn important. And I hope you're doing what you can to support those folks in your community as well. Uh, and that's really all that we can do right now is uh, try to take those steps and try to keep aware, try to keep reading, try to keep understanding what's happening. I want this podcast to be a place where we can do that investigation where we can be watching and listening. And uh, we are trying to steer the ship in order to be able to do episodes like that. Um, we're trying to book some guests right now who can come on to talk to us about coronavirus. Um, let me tell you, it's a little hard to book them. They're a little bit busy, if you can imagine that. Uh, folks are like, oh, do I have time to go be on a podcast for an hour? No, I think I might have to uh, save some lives today. Um, but we're doing our best to, to line some guests up for you. And in the meantime, we've got a nice backlog of episodes that we're going to be putting up for you on our normal weekly schedule. Uh, it's just that those were recorded uh, before the pandemic really seized our country the way it has in the last week. And, and so, you know, they might be <laughs> they're a little bit from the pre-coronavirus point of view. Not to say that they're they're not full of interesting facts that you got to know. You know, they're just uh, they're not about the thing that we're all thinking about 24-7 right now. And in the interview we recorded with Bruce Schneier today, we actually do get into coronavirus a little bit, but we did record it last Wednesday. And so, you know, things have uh, have accelerated since then. Um so look, with that being said, I hope you enjoy the show today. I hope that you are staying safe. I hope that you are washing your hands for 20 seconds. Seriously, 20 seconds really does matter because that's how long it takes for the soap to really vaporize the virus. The, the time you spend really does make a difference. I hope you are uh, keeping in touch with the folks you care about and encouraging them to do the same. And uh, 
I hope we all get through this on the other side. Uh, none too worse for wear. Uh, either way, I will be there with you, putting out new episodes for as long as we can, uh, trying to bring you new information, uh, new perspectives, fascinating people uh, to keep you entertained and informed. And uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of the community of people who listen to this podcast. We need each other now more than ever uh, in our communities and in our broader communities on the internet. So uh, thank you for listening and hope you enjoy today's show. I don't know the truth. Welcome to Factually, I'm Adam Conover, and look, since every piece of our lives is online now, our pictures, our health data, our banking information, our uh, rather suspicious browsing histories, internet security is now everything security. Now, you might believe, and tech companies would have us believe, that if you want to be secure, you just need the right cryptography, the right fancy tech inside your machine, and wango bango, you're good, right? Actually, that high-tech approach actually neglects one crucial weakness in our security armor, which is that good old-fashioned fallible humans are in charge of it. See, humans make mistakes all the time, multiple times a day in my case, so it doesn't take a supercomputer or a team of evil geniuses to get us to devote private information. All it takes is a convincing email or phone call. This technique is called social engineering. It's the oldest hacking technique in the book, and all the high-tech cryptography in the world does nothing to stop it. To take one famous example, in 2012, the journalist Matt Honan was hacked, and the hack was surprisingly low-tech. First, the hackers figured out he had an Apple ID account, and in order to get into that account and ruin Matt Honan's week, all they needed was his name, his billing address, which they were able to find from public domain name records and the last four digits of his credit card. So to get those last four digits, they called Amazon. They pretended to be Honan. They convinced the Amazon rep to let them enter a new credit card number onto the account. Then they called back and gave a different operator the new credit card number they just made up. By tricking Amazon's network of human operators, they were able to access Honan's Amazon account and look at his actual credit card number. And from there, they, all they had to do was call Apple pretending to be Matt and get into that account. And from there, they were able to destroy his Google account, all the data on his iPhone, iPad, and MacBook, and take over his Twitter account, which was the whole point of the hack to begin with. In the end, they just wanted his Twitter account because it was three letters long, at M-A-T. I don't know. They just wanted it for street cred or something. Maybe they don't like typing long usernames. Who the hell knows? The point is, they were able to destroy his digital life just by uh, lightly tricking two Amazon phone representatives. And imagine if they'd wanted more. Imagine if he was a politician who they wanted state secrets from, or if they were a hospital who they wanted to hold for ransom, as happens so often now. Ransomware attacks are becoming far more common. The fact is, new attacks are happening every day, and in response, tech companies, again, are constantly trumpeting the new, expensive, high-tech security measures they're deploying. They're scanning your fingerprint, your face. They've got all the new crap, right? But the fact is, it doesn't require fancy math or a supercomputer to hack someone. All it really needs is a dedicated con artist and a gullible human. And if your security system doesn't protect against that, if it doesn't rigorously plan for every angle of 
attack, no matter how simple, then that expensive high-tech security is really nothing but security theater, giving you the feeling of security instead of actual security. Well, here today to tell us more about how important good security design is and how hard it is to get it right is today's guest. He's an expert on online security, and he's the inventor of the concept of security theater. Please welcome public interest technologist and Harvard Kennedy School fellow, Bruce Schneier. Bruce Schneier, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you you were last on the previous installment of this podcast, uh, the Adam Ruins Everything podcast, about three years ago. Uh, what's new in the world of security since then? What has been changing? What is scaring you today? Yeah, you know, there's not a lot new and everything's new. Right? A lot of the vulnerabilities, <laughs> the attacks are the same. What's changed is computers and everything. You yeah, know, we last talked. There weren't computers in your refrigerator and your toaster and your thermostat. Right. I mean, that's that's pretty new. In your doorbell and, then, and your doorbell, and and then uh, a lot of these disinformation attacks. Mm. Uh, right, is new. It hasn't happened since uh, since we last talked. You know, and none of that is actually new, but it's happening to an extent that is surprising to most people and it's become political it's become something the average person now cares about yeah well let's talk about the let's talk about the first one first there's computers and everything now yeah uh uh home uh smart home products are everywhere you go to a home depot they're falling off the shelves hey install this uh wireless security light fixture that'll change colors and also stop your home from being robbed by scary people and you can use it to watch your baby and etc and and there, that's complicated. There's a lot of perhaps negative knock-on effects of that, aren't there? Well, you know, I, I think about the fact that there are all of these computers in things that are not traditionally computers. Right? Mm-hmm. We're used to laptops, desktops, phones, and now it is everything. And the same care that Apple and Microsoft and Google take with software, and, and you know, we can argue whether it's good enough, but they certainly take more care than the people who make internet-connected thermostats and toys and even medical devices. So we're seeing this, this explosion of things on the internet without commensurate security. Plus they affect the world in a direct physical manner. So it's not like your phone, which is just about data, right? My thermostat turns my heat on. I live in Minneapolis. If it's cold in the winter and someone hacks it, my heat turns off and I'm not there. My pipes freeze. Yeah. Even worse, it could be a medical device in my body where if it's hacked, even worse happens. Or a car, right? These things are touching the world. Yeah. And that really changes the risk profile, even though the computers haven't changed at all. And you're right that, you know, say, I I think Apple probably has pretty good security practices. They certainly, you know, market themselves as having them. And, you know, based on what I've read, okay, this is done well, that's done well, et cetera. They're certainly one of the companies putting the most money into securing those devices, I would guess. And even they, you know, there's, hey, occasionally people's iClouds get hacked. Like there's, uh, you know, it's not like this is an impregnable fortress. And when you compare that to like the Ecobee thermostat in, in my house, I don't know this company. I don't know what their security, hopefully they're good, right? But, and now when I go look at my, you know, home router and I go see how many devices are connected, there's there's about 40 devices connected in my house. All and you might router. not know what they all are. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's because I mean, something shows up and it connects. So 
And you think about Apple or, or Microsoft or Google, they're the big companies. I mean, yeah, they're doing a better job, but Patch Tuesday comes for Windows and there are like 80 vulnerabilities being patched every month. Yeah. That's what good looks like. Now, that being agile, we can't write good software, so we patch quickly. Mm-hmm. That's the mechanism we have. Yeah. Now, that doesn't translate down to that Ecobee 3000, whatever it is you, you have. <laughs> right? Your home router... The way you patch it is you throw it away and buy a new one. <laughs> right. That's the mechanism. So that that whole agile security, we're going to fix it really fast when we find a vulnerability, doesn't translate to those low-cost embedded systems. So that mechanism starts failing. And you've talked about occasions where one of these weird Internet of Things devices, like some weird little device, has been used to hack a larger system as like an entry point for a dedicated attack, Right. So the Dyn botnet is the example we all like to use. 2018, mm-hmm. this was a vulnerability in basically webcams and DVRs. Mm. They had default and weak passwords, and some guy collected, I don't know, a bunch of million of them into a botnet, used them to attack a domain name server, which had a knock-on effect of dropping 20 or so major websites offline. Wow. So, so, so there you have that cascade of vulnerabilities. You can imagine that targeted against a power system, something more critical, a hospital. Yeah. And I mean, these are, these are not theoretical. These happen. And so this guy sort of mass hacked all these devices and then zombified them in order to get them to do his bidding to take down this, this important piece of internet infrastructure. And sadly, zombified is the technical term we have for it. <laughs> I do read a security blog on occasion, so I may have I may have grasped that. Um, I mean, that's that's stunning. And how much should I mean? Do you think the average person should feel differently when they go to the Home Depot and they look at the Ring doorbell and they consider getting it? So this is hard, and we're struggling with how we tell the consumer this. Mm-hmm. There are people working on effectively security nutrition labels. The idea is we can put a label on products that has similar information that a consumer can use to make a buying decision. Yeah. You know, right now, the consumer is looking at features. I mean, they're buying, uh, you know, a Nest thermostat. They're buying an Amazon Echo. Amazon Echo is like marketed as this thing will spy on you and (laughs) good things happen as a result. Right. It listens to your everything that you say. So it's going to be hard. You know, a lot of us think the right way to do this are actually product safety standards. Mm. I mean, when you go buy, you know, a pair of children's pajamas, there isn't a label that says whether or not they'll catch fire. Mm -hmm. It's just not allowed to sell flammable children's pajamas. We, we, We make a rule. We get that they're cheaper. Yeah, you can't buy them. You can't sell them. That's just the way we are. Right. There isn't such a rule anywhere. For internet security. Yeah. And I think that hurts us. And whether it's the Federal Trade Commission or some other body, I think we need more regulation in the consumer goods space because we're getting a lot of shoddy merchandise. There's no real liabilities here. And the consumer can't tell the difference between a secure product and insecure product. They're going to make the same claims. Yeah. And you're going to buy it based on features. 
So is this is this becoming like an unsafe at any speed moment for internet devices? You know, the famous Ralph Nader book about the car industry that resulted in, hey, these cars were blowing up or, you know, causing uh, injuries or death at even low speed collisions. And, you know, there was a sea change where, okay, we're going to require airbags, crumple zones, all the different things that may have made our cars much safer, at least for the people in them. Maybe not for people who get hit by them. But uh, yeah, pedestrians aren't doing too well. It's true. Yeah, exactly. Those big front SUV groups will kill him, and where's Nitsa on that? But, uh, you know, still, there was a seat change, and we started requiring these things because, hey, consumers can't make their cars safe by themselves. We need a, a basic floor on the safety. Is it starting to seem the same way for internet-enabled devices? Yeah, I hope so. I doubt it. I mean, you could tell the same story. Right? Yeah. The difference is automobiles is 40,000 deaths a year. Mm. A lot of people die in car crashes. This is the most dangerous thing most of us yeah. do in our life. Is and we're at historic and we're at historic lows for that in many ways. And that's, that's right, still, we are. Yeah. And, and you're right. Pedestrian deaths are up, and and driver uh, and passenger deaths are down. So we're not yet at that space on the internet. You know, we're not seeing deaths because of insecure IoT devices. The mm. only exception. And this isn't proven, this is my guess. We're seeing a lot of ransomware against hospitals where critical systems are shut down. Yeah. And we have had hospitals have to turn away ambulances, right? Go to that other hospital across town because we can't take you. Our computers are all down. Wow. Now, right? It's possible and probable that has resulted in at least one death. I, I don't have any data. But we're yeah. not seeing the cars crash. We're not seeing the pacemakers crash. We're not seeing the sorts of, of loss of life which would spur a government to take on the industry that doesn't want the regulation and force it. Yeah. So we're not at unsafe any speed moment, but we might be approaching it. I really hate that we would have to get there to do something. But we as a species are terrible at being proactive. You know, we are reactive. <laughs> yeah. We are not. I've noticed. Let's worry about, you know, the the thing that could happen in the future. We are, let's panic about the thing that happened in the past. <laughs> and make sure it can't happen again, ideally. But yeah, I mean, it's. Or at least in exactly I, the same way. Yeah. But that means, you know, I've, I've read that when you're talking about risks that. Hey, if you're reacting to something bad after it happens, you're too late in many ways. And really, you want to prevent the thing. And we're not even close to doing that. Yeah, right. It depends what the thing is. Yeah. I mean, so if there are things that are rare and spectacular, airplane terrorism, uh, you know, new coronaviruses. Those are so rare, you have to be proactive or, or you're not going to do the job. If it's credit card fraud then reactive is probably okay. Mm. I mean, new, new kind of fraud is invented, credit companies notice it, they put in defenses, and there's a steady state. You see sure. that in spam, right? And, and you, know, you might notice every couple of months you get a lot of spam for a day. That's because <laughs> the spammers invented a new technique and it takes a while for the right. anti-spam companies to figure it out. So you can be reactive in kind of that low-level Garden yeah. variety attacks and fraud because it's a sort of a steady state system. When you're yeah. talking about rare and spectacular, if you're reactive, yeah, you're way behind. You're not going to do well. You need to be proactive. We are, of course, learning that this month. 
Well, what do you think? I love your framing of product standards that like right now we're selling all this stuff willy nilly and we're selling like baby gates with holes in them. We're selling, uh, you know, products that are dangerous or insecure in ways that are unclear to the customer because it's so new. Um, do you think that the solution to that is, uh, you've talked about regulation. Is there also a consumer education part of it? Is it, it, should people be having better security practices themselves or is that impossible to ask the average person to keep data security in mind 24 seven? So I think it's largely impossible. Just like we don't ask consumers to have medical degrees, you know, we right. make sure that the drugs they buy are safe. We don't ask them to have auto mechanic licenses. We don't ask them to be civil engineers, right? I'm, I'm in a building and this building has been constructed well and I have to, I cannot care, right? I'm <laughs> right. going to fly, I'm going to fly home tonight and I'm going to trust that the airline has a system to put well-trained and well-rested pilots into well-maintained aircrafts. And I don't know how it works and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Right? Because regulation requires it. We cannot ask consumers to be experts in everything. Right? We have to have some system by which they are largely kept safe in all of these areas. Yeah. And there's no other option. I mean, I, I can't think of an industry in the past 150 years that has improved consumer safety or security without being forced to by the government. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, pharmaceuticals, cars, airplanes, medical devices, food production, restaurants, workplace safety, consumer goods, most recently the safety of, cons of financial products. Mm -hmm. The market rewards getting stuff out there quick and rewards features, doesn't reward safety and security. But so oh, the market pretty much never fixes this problem yeah. in their industry until they're forced to, in which case they do. But a lot of the time, once they're forced to, we see the pattern again and again. Once you have that safety, that's actually good for business because, you know, the, the USDA inspected stamp on your meat, right, means, well, means we go from Upton Sinclair times where, you know, everyone's getting sick from eating contaminated meat to, hey, we can all, you know, most Americans believe that our meat is safe and therefore meat consumption goes up. Um, th that sort of pattern, you know, and right now people don't believe that their devices are secure. Everyone sort of believes, yeah, they're all spying on us. We're all being hacked all the time. Everything you buy is unsafe. And if that perception were changed via the government setting some basic standards, maybe that would benefit business. And it does. So here's the basic economic problem. It's individual action versus collective action. Mm. The industry does better when they're regulated and their products are safe. Each individual company doesn't want to be the first one to spend that money to make their products safer because right. they'll be penalized because they'll be more expensive. Yeah. So everybody really wants someone to come in and say, look, all of you have to do this. If I move first and I put that stamp on my meat or whatever, I make my meat safer. Yeah. My meat's now more expensive. The customer doesn't understand what that stamp they means. They don't believe it. They believe right. all so, meat is tainted still. So they're not going to buy it. Yeah. But once the government comes in and says, look, all of you, have to maintain your aircraft. All of you right. have to test your drugs. All of you have to make sure that your iPhone apps aren't spying on people. Right? Then consumers get more confidence. And yes, the industry benefits. And you get innovation. Because now there's a market for all these security systems mm. that these, these manufacturers can buy and use. 
Right? One of the problems I have with my security is it's largely out of my hands. Right. right. My email is on some cloud provider. My photos are somewhere else. My documents are somewhere. My credit card data is somewhere else. There's nothing I can do. <laughs> I am powerless. <laughs> right. Right. But I, what I want is, is for all of those companies to secure my data better, but I can't force it. Yeah. I have no leverage. I mean, I could not have an email address. That's dumb. <laughs> or right? you I could, could not have a credit card. That's even dumber. Or, I mean, or if you're an ultra nerd, you can run your own email server, but then you are personally responsible for, it's like building your own home security system from scratch. It's That's right. And, and sadly, I'm probably one of the few people left who does <laughs> manage my own email. Right. But, you know, last time I checked, Google has about half of my email because even though I don't use Google, everyone else does. Right. So I'm, you know, I'm screwed either way. Yeah, it's in other people's inboxes. That's right. Well, and this is a pretty basic form of, like, American regulation you're talking about. Just the government setting basic standards. It seems very sensible to me. Um, is there something, though, that you think would make that happen? Or are you a pessimist about it? You know, I tend to be near-term pessimistic, long-term optimistic. Okay. Right? This isn't the thing that's going to stifle society and civilization. We'll figure this out. We figured out harder things. Mm -hmm. Near-term, the companies have a lot of power. And government's really still afraid to do any serious regulation. Yeah. So, you know, you're not seeing much. You're seeing things out of Europe that's a start. You're seeing things out of California. Mm -hmm. That's a start. But you don't really have regulatory bodies that have a footprint that matches these companies. Yeah. So we have this mismatch. So near term, actually don't see a lot of hope. This is not a, <laughs> uh, this is not a presidential issue, right? Yeah. This is not a, no one is campaigning on it. Not even Andrew Yang campaigned on this. <laughs> right. And, and he was as he nerdy as we got. Yeah, for real. And, and he did not. So, you know, if it's not a campaign issue, elected officials don't care that much. I know the, the, the voting public doesn't care that much. So the more likely to do what companies want because they care because the money matters. Right. So you're not getting near-term movement. Europe seems to be the exception. And the neat thing about this is a good regulation in Europe helps the entire world. Mm. Because software is right once still everywhere. Yeah. So right now, the car you buy in the U.S. is not the car you buy in Mexico. Yeah. Environmental laws are different, and the manufacturers tune the engines. But the Facebook you get in the U.S. is exactly the same Facebook you get in Mexico because mm -hmm. it's easier. <laughs> right. So California, beginning of this year, they passed a new Internet of Things security law. Not that great. One of the things it says is no default passwords. So imagine that thermostat manufacturer reads a law, changes their software, no default passwords. They're not going to have two versions, one for California, one for everyone else. Right. They'll make that change worldwide because it's cheaper and easier to do it that way. So a regulation in any large enough economy gets promulgated throughout the world. Right. Mm. GDPR is the European data privacy standard. Right. You have gotten a lot of more annoying pops ups on your browser yeah. because of it, even though you're not in Europe. Right. And yeah, you know, I, I used to work for IBM. They actually said we're going to implement this European law worldwide because that is easier than figuring out who a European is. 
And these, uh, some of these pop-ups are irritating. There's been some irritating effects of GDPR, certainly. Like, for instance, let me just give you an example. True TV hosts uh, Adam Ruins Everything's bibliographies, right? We have bibliographies for every episode. And they actually, rather than make the website truetv.com secure enough for GDPR. They just made it inaccessible to anyone outside of the United States. So yeah, I've seen that. Some real retailers <laughs> do that too. It's pretty funny. And so I've got people who watch the show on YouTube in Italy or whatever saying, "Hey, how do I see the the bibliography? I can't access it." And there's, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. But the better. So you case- want a little tip? So tell them to install a VPN. Right. And pretend they're from the United States. I mean, it's not like these <laughs> systems easy. work all that well. <laughs> right. It's trivial to get around. But in the best case scenario, yeah, the, the you know, the, the better parts of the GDPR that are, you know, regulating how my data can be used and et cetera, I benefit from even though I don't actually live in any of those nations. And that's true. And hopefully that'll keep improving because Europe is the regulatory superpower on the planet, right? They are the ones who are willing to slap fines on these companies that the companies notice. U.S. is not. No one else is capable. I feel like this is an optimistic note that we actually ended on. So I'm going to let's take a really quick break. When we get back, I want to talk to you uh, about disinformation. And I also want to get your thoughts on the coronavirus. We'll be right back with more Bruce Schneier. Okay, we're back with Bruce Schneier. Bruce, let's turn to disinformation. Give me your thoughts on these campaigns. Do you want me to lie about it and tell you the truth about it? Because <laughs> if I lie about it, that'll be super meta. Yeah, and it'll also uh, catch fire across. We know from research that lies travel further on Twitter than the truth. So that means we'll go far more viral um, if we have if you go that way. But yeah, no, what, what are so you said this is a new type of attack that we've seen um, targeted disinformation campaigns. Uh, how do those look from your perspective as a security researcher? It's it's, again, it's new and it's not new. I mean, propaganda is is ancient. And certainly after World War II, Cold War, propaganda was a big deal, right? Russians in the U.S., we, everyone practice it. What's different is being able to do it on the internet. Mm-hmm. The internet has different affordances. The internet makes things cheaper. Internet makes things travel faster. Internet changes how we share information. And it turns out certain types of propaganda are easier to do and cheaper to do and are more effective. And some of it is the fact that these platforms optimize for engagement, not accuracy. Facebook makes more money the more time you spend on Facebook. Mm. And it turns out you spend more time on Facebook when you're pissed off. (laughs) Yep. Right? So if these platforms can get you riled up, you will engage more. And whether that is Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, they push extremist content, not because they're malicious, because the algorithms say it is more effective for them to achieve their goals, which is to show you more ads. And that's being taken advantage of. The thing about the, all the disinformation is we actually don't know how effective it is. Mm. I mean, all of the analysis, we can't tell. Did it change anybody's vote? Yeah. What it does seem to do is it makes people more more partisan Mm -hmm. and it reduces our trust in our institutions. Yeah. Right. It makes us mistrust the election process, the census. 
So I'm going to give you my theory here. Now, it's going to be a little wonky, but I think it's worth doing. Please. So here's the question. Why is it that the same disinformation campaigns that are bad in a country like the U.S. or or are destabilizing in a country like the U.S. are stabilizing in a country like Russia? That's an interesting question. So here's my theory. Well, societies have two kinds of information. There's something we'll call shared political knowledge, Mm -hmm. which is things we all agree on, like who's in charge, like how elections work, like what the laws are. We all agree on that. Then there's contested political knowledge. That's the stuff we disagree on. Mm-hmm. And that's things like what should the tax rates be? What should regulatory structure look like? You know, I mean, all the things we battle politically. Yeah, is voter fraud real? Stuff like that. Right. So in a democracy, we harness disagreements to solve problems. Right. We have elections, we vote, we, we debate policy. Right. We like disagreement. That's how we solve problems. Okay, now move to an autocracy like Russia. You do have common political knowledge, like who's in charge, but in fact, contested political knowledge is dangerous. Mm-hmm. And governments like Russia suppress it. And things like how popular the opposition is, right? You know, what, what the government is doing, that tends to be suppressed. Yeah. So a... Open internet in a country like Russia challenges their monopoly on information and is dangerous. Mm. Right? Free and open exchange of information is dangerous to a country like Russia. Yeah. In the United States, our danger are attacks that turn shared political knowledge to contested political knowledge. If we disagree on the results of the election, we have problems. Yeah. If we disagree on the fairness of the census, the fairness of the courts – the fairness of the police, we have problems. Yeah. So the same attacks, I mean, the exact same campaigns in Russia, which basically make people unsure about what's true, stabilizes their regime. Hmm. In the U.S., being unsure about what's true destabilizes us. So we actually have this vulnerability based on the fact that normally disagreements are valuable in yeah. our country. And how active are these campaigns? I mean, you know, you log on to Twitter and you see everybody's accusing everybody else of being a Russian bot, you know? Everyone's like, ah, oh, Putin put you up to that, you know? And it's, or they're saying anyone who says that is a moron, (laughs) right? Anyone who thinks that this is an issue at all. Um, From your just on the ground objective view as a security expert, like how real is this as a day-to-day fact of life? How much is this affecting us? So it's interesting, and this is a really interesting point, that it is real, but a lot of it isn't happening. I think we're seeing Russians under every bed, and they're not. So yeah. the real data shows the attacks are less common than we believe, but in fact, now we're doing the work for them. Yeah, right. That if we are looking at this stuff and mistrusting it, you don't need the Russian bots because we're doing it to ourselves. Yeah. Right? Once the seed is planted, once the mistrust is there, we we can take it on our own. Right. And that's bad. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, yeah Putin the, hires, you know, 50 guys in the Ukraine to tweet a couple times for six months and then we freak out for five years. Right. If you're trying to do a disinformation cam- campaign, that's even better for you. Right. So, so when right now there's a lot of misinformation about uh, about COVID nineteen. Yeah. We do not know if they are coordinated 
government-run disinformation campaigns. Mm. There's been accusations. The State Department has said there are. They have not offered any evidence. The companies I know and researchers that are that monitor this haven't seen anything coordinated yet. Mm. So we don't know. But the fact that there could be is already damaging. Yeah. Well, when it comes to fighting back against disinformation campaigns, if, do you have a similar optimistic view or what is your view of, of our prospects for fighting back against that trend? Because uh, as you said, it's it's extremely damaging to our society uh, over the next five years. Where do you think that pushback comes from? The government? Does it come from these corporations changing their practices, foreign policy? What is it? So lots of research and the short answer is nobody knows. Okay. Right? Is it education? Is it the tech companies taking down misinformation? But what do you do if the president tweets it? Does that count? Right. Uh, does it involve uh, going after the organized actors, right? The U.S. going into the Internet Research Agency in uh, in Russia and shutting it down, which supposedly we did during the 2018 election cycle. Mm. A few days before, we went in and, like, turned out their lights so they couldn't do what they were doing. <laughs> Right. Was that effective? We think so. But, you know, we really don't know. Companies changing their practices is going to be a big part of it, but they're not going to do it as long as their profit is elsewhere. Yeah. So now does the government force companies to do it? And how do we do that? And it runs quickly afoul of free speech laws. So we really have some serious problems of what's effective. I've seen research that shows priming people for accuracy uh, matters, but a lot of it comes from the fact that politics is now tribal. Yeah. You know, my team good, your team bad. I'm going to retweet the thing that says your team is bad, regardless of whether it's true. I don't even care if it's true or not <laughs> because I'm tweaking your team. Yeah. I'm, you know, it's like the truth in sports about a, uh, a close call. You don't care about the truth. You care about it coming on your side. Yeah. Now you're not, you don't want accuracy. You want your side to win. And that kind of hyper-partisanship in politics fuels it. The economics of surveillance capitalism fuels it. So we have some really deep core issues that we have to address before you can do uh, disinformation on top of it. Yeah. I mean, if you think about what Cambridge Analytica did in 2016, if they did it for Kellogg's, Kellogg's would have gotten an award for savvy marketing. I mean, that's, right, that's what right. the system allows. Right. We just didn't want Russia to do it. But it's really hard to make that distinction. <laughs> I want to ask you about some more big security uh, uh, stories in the news that I've seen over the last six months, because I only get to talk to you once every couple of years. Uh, this story where the- I, I blame you for this, by the way. <laughs> We'll have you on every month. You're great. Uh, but, okay, so this story where the Justice Department was pressuring Apple to, uh, you know, give them access to encrypted iPhone backups, right? One of the good security practices that Apple has is, I, I believe, you tell me how good it is, is they encrypt, you know, what's on everybody's iPhone in a way that makes it very difficult for anyone to get onto it. But the Justice Department's been pressuring Apple in order to give them a backdoor into this. Uh, what's your What's your view on that? So this is actually an important policy question, and it's being framed wrong, right? What the FBI wants is for you to have security unless they have a warrant. And I can't do that, right? I can't make security that operates differently in the presence of a certain piece of paper. Mm. So we have a choice here, and you have one choice. 
either we make our iPhones insecure with a backdoor, which means the FBI can get access, but also the Russian government, the Chinese government, cyber criminals, everyone else can get access. Because if there's a if there's a special if there's a special lock for the FBI, then that lock is pickable too. And it, right, that, yeah. right, that that lock's available to anybody who knows about it. Mm-hmm. Or I can make the iPhone secure, in which case the iPhone in the pocket of every single elected official and judge and police officer and CEO and nuclear power plant operator is secure, but that phone in the pocket of a criminal and terrorist is also secure. Mm-hmm. So so this, this is security versus security. There is security that comes from the fact that the FBI can open iPhones and there's security of the fact that iPhones can't be opened by anybody. Right. Which one is more important? Right. I think as we move this Internet of Things, where computers affect the world in a direct physical manner, that we have to adopt a defense-dominant strategy. Yeah. Defense has to win here. Yeah. It's too important. Because there's, there's going to be billions of people walking around with iPhones, and the FBI is only going to need to crack into a, a however many a year. Like, the the fact that everyone, the thing that literally everyone has in their pocket being more secure, that is probably the more important thing of the two. And the FBI has other ways to get at data. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and a lot of this is, I think, bad training. So mm. the average career length of an FBI agent is about 20 years. You know, mm. Then you get your pension to go elsewhere. 20 years ago, 25 years ago, there was no iPhone. I mean, they were getting, they were getting this data from lots of places. They were using real-life forensics to collect data. Yeah. We all now have an iPhone, and the, you know, the default is get the data off the phone. Mm-hmm. And I think once we deny that and say, look, you can't have that for these really good security reasons, the FBI needs to get retrained on all of these other investigative techniques. The data is out there. There's lots of ways you can get at. And you'll see it in, in, in hearings. You saw it in uh, the Roger Stone indictments. There's a point where we're reading transcripts of a, of a secure messaging app that's unencryptable. The FBI can't get at it. And at one point he says, you know, uh, something about that the fact that we're secure and the FBI can, and no one can read the data and we read the rest of it. <laughs> they probably got it from the other party in the conversation. Yeah. They might have gotten it when he put a backup online. Yeah. Right? There are lots of ways to get at this data and getting at just getting the phone is a lazy way to do it. <laughs> we need to recognize that the FBI needs much better forensic analysis of electronic evidence. Yeah. And we need to provide it for them. And that's going to take money and training. So we need to secure the systems because of all the, the all the, the badness resulting from insecurities and then also train law enforcement to handle a world of these secure systems. I mean, because we currently live in a world where, hey, Jeff Bezos's phone, right, one of the most powerful men in tech, like, can be devastatingly hacked in a really high-profile way. Like, that, it seems very clear that, yeah, defense is extremely important here. So that's another interesting story. So yeah. this, this is a company called NSO Group. They're an Israeli cyber weapons arms manufacturer. 
they produce products that they sell to countries like Saudi Arabia. They produce cyber weapons. They're they all. produce cyber weapons that they sell to countries that you and I don't want to have those cyber weapons, <laughs> like Kazakhstan. <laughs> okay. Right? Like Syria, like Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And those countries use those cyber weapons against journalists and human rights workers and CEOs of large tech firms. Wow. Now, this is another issue that we need to wrestle with. They are making an industry on insecurity. And there's an arms race between the companies, the tech companies, and these cyber weapons arms manufacturers. And whenever Apple figures out, okay, that's what they use, they, they patch it. And it might take a year for it to get into the phone in your pocket. Yeah. But we are forever trying to make these devices secure. But now there is this extremely large industry in giving these capabilities to governments that really shouldn't have them. And this isn't just like, you know, Donald Trump's one guy sitting on a mattress somewhere figuring out how to hack something. This is like, these are companies operating in in the light of day, just making ways to hack into consumer electronics like this. That's right. And then selling them to to countries, uh, sold to local law enforcement in the United States and elsewhere. I mean, this is really arms trafficking. It's internet arms trafficking, but that that's what it is. Wow. And we tend to be poor in this planet on regulating arms trafficking. Yeah, I've noticed. And we're really poor about internet arms. Well, probably most people who could regulate it don't even know it exists. Like, it's a, it's a pretty new concept. And also, most people in positions of power are kind of stupid about stuff like this. Yeah, and then we have countries that are profiting. I mean, the NSO yeah. is an Israeli company. You know, we should be able to pressure Israel to do something. Uh, there's another company that is a German company, an Italian company, a UK company. Yeah. These are the cyber weapons arms manufacturers. There's also dual use products. There are products that are legitimate corporate products that in the hands of someone else can be used uh, for censorship. Mm. So countries will buy these products designed to ensure corporate secrets don't leave the corporation. And use them to ensure that there's no free speech in their country. Yeah. This is bad. <laughs> yeah. right? This is not what we want to export. <laughs> How much should we be worried about our own government uh, developing these hacking technologies? I mean, there was this story about the, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the CIA setting up a front, uh, like like sponsoring a company that like allowed, gave them a backdoor into cryptography uh, around the world in a bath. Can you just fill me in on this and your yeah, view on so it? Yeah, so this is, this is a company post-World War II, uh, electromechanical encryption devices. They look kind of like typewriters with lights on them. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Embassies around the world use them to encrypt diplomatic traffic back and forth. Many, many countries use these. There was a company uh, in Switzerland called Crypto AG that provided the equipment for uh, much of the world's embassies. And through a complicated story, both the uh, German and U.S. governments managed to buy the company <laughs> and insert backdoors into the products used in embassies around the world. I mean, like, Jesus. you know, if you're writing a spy novel, this is a cool subplot. Yeah. Right? A- and no one would believe it. <laughs> but we did it. And for many decades. And, you know, that kind of thing continued into the computer era. That 
uh, you know, in the 80s and 90s, we were the U.S. was putting back doors in in software encryption products, was limiting the length of keys uh, in exported products in an effort to ensure that they were always eavesdropping on government mm-hmm. traffic. Now, in our world, that's legit, right? You're allowed to spy in other countries. No one goes to war on that. Everyone says, you know, yeah, you're allowed to do that. Even a couple of years ago, China breaks into the Office of Personnel Management, the United States, <laughs> steals the personal data files of pretty much every American employee with a security clearance. <laughs> and uh, I think it was the the head of U.S. Cyber Command was testifying before Congress. One of the Congress people asked him about this attack and he stopped the person and said, this is not an attack, right? That's espionage. That's normal. That's what we do. He didn't say that part, but that's what he meant. Yeah. Right? That's normal this is, stuff. This is part of doing business, yeah. That's part of doing business in the modern world. We spy on each other. Yeah. You know, so taking out your power grid's bad. You know, poking around in your power grid, that's kind of okay. (laughs) Unless it's not, in which case it really isn't. But part of this strikes me that like, so the CIA was selling a security product that had a back door to governments around the world. All those governments are less secure than they thought they were because there's a back door. Um, and th- like, this is, this is degrading security. And I could imagine this being done for like American, you know, uh, domestic right. security products as well. Is that the case? Uh, generally not. So there are exceptions. There are times when we see uh, the government try to put a back door in, American products. There was a, a standard that is used uh, in cryptography that the government seems to have put a backdoor in. It wasn't used a lot because it was a weird standard, wow. but that, that example is used. And to be fair, the CIA wasn't selling the products. The CIA owned the company through several shell corporations <laughs> and a whole lot of secrecy that sold the insecure products. Okay, to me it sounds so, like they sold the product, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, but, but you know, technically, yeah, yeah, it yeah. was much more, uh, I mean, you know, it was yeah, more yeah, nudge, worthy nudge, of wink, the wink. CIA than that. It wasn't like CIA brand security products. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, buy yeah. them for your government today. No, they, no, like, they were, that would be a bad marketing scheme. No, of course, they were secretly doing it because they're the CIA. <laughs> Right, right, right. It's like in their name, yeah. well, not, but it should be in their name. Mm-hmm. It's secretly in their name. But this is, uh, I, I get the principle though is that uh, if the government is able to break into things that we think are secure, that makes the thing less secure, which is bad for us. Is am I right? The, and that's right. And there's this notion of fragility. Mm. So if you think about those old electromechanical encryption typewriters, if anyone else learned, and we actually don't know. If another country learned about the back door, I mean, CIA had moles working for Moscow. Yeah. Did one of them tell Moscow about them, about the back door? Maybe. <laughs> right. right. You know, did someone else figure, did someone else take the product reverse engineer and say, hey, wait a second, there's a back door in this. I wonder if it's true all around the world. No, wait, it is. Yeah. Right? It's very fragile security. And that's the problem with these only we know about the trick tricks. Right. It, they're very fragile. Right. So you, I can build a backdoor in Apple iPhones and like not tell anybody about it, but that's really fragile. Once someone learns about it, the gig is up. And there have been cases, right, where like NSA security or hacking technology has like leaked into the wild. Am I right about this? There have been a lot of cases recently. So, <laughs> <Okay>. uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> so NSA hacking tools in 2016, near as we can tell, uh, the Russians popped some kind of staging server somewhere, got a whole bunch of NSA hacking tools and dumped them on the internet. Wow. And they have been used by other governments and criminals ever since. A huge freaking disaster. Uh, there's a, also a bunch of CIA hacking tools. And actually there was a trial of the person who may or may not have been the person who leaked them to WikiLeaks. Uh, it was a mistrial. So they neither convicted nor uh, declared innocent. They might, they might just do the trial again. So there's a whole lot of CIA hacking tools that hit the internet, I think the same year, maybe the year after. It's called Vault 7, if your uh, listeners want to look it up. Okay. The, the NSA ones are the shadow brokers. You can look them up too. <laughs> so yes, it turns out we are terrible at keeping our hacking tools secret. <laughs> so, you know, not having them would be a detriment to national security, but having them and leaking them is probably a bigger detriment to national security. <laughs> Which just goes to show like how if you have to focus on security being the most important thing, not your ability to break it, right? Right, defense dominant strategy. In all of these debates against attack and defense, defense has to win. It's just too important and too critical. Yeah. I mean, 10 years ago, offense could win. Now the stuff is so essential to national security, it has to work right. You know, these vulnerabilities can be used to drop our power grid. That would be no fun. Yeah. Well, we only have a few more minutes, so I do want to ask just because, hey, we're all thinking about COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, every minute of every day. What take do you have it have on it as a security researcher, security engineer that, that maybe most folks don't have? How do you look at this? Uh, is there any security perspective on it? So there is. Let's insert all the real medical advice and information by reference, so I don't have to say it, but assume that that's all true. Right. <laughs> uh, I look at it very much as a risk management uh Balance. Yeah. We're again dealing with uh, individual interest versus group interest, right? I want everyone to basically stay put for a couple of weeks to flatten out our infection curve. Mm -hmm. But, you know, individually, we want to go do the things we want to do. So we're less likely to do it. Yeah, I got to go do stand up shows, man. I'm a comic. That's right. Otherwise, you don't make a living and we don't have health insurance for you. Sorry. Yeah. So you've got to work. The, I, I'm thinking about everyone working from home. And thinking how insecure those home networks are and what kind of vulnerabilities that'll open up into the corporate networks as we force people to work from home. That'll be interesting to watch. I'm looking at the disinformation campaigns. I'm worried about the security of the medical information. You want to really cause havoc? Start hacking hospitals and changing medical information. Don't I do that. I hope that doesn't yeah. happen. <laughs> yeah, do, right, okay, but don't do that. Right. <laughs> So, you know, th there is an interesting angle because all this stuff is computerized. Yeah. But right now it is all about, about medicine and there's a lot we don't know. So there's a lot of fear. We tend to fill in information we don't know with information that is fearful. Mm -hmm. And I worry actually a lot more about the human overreaction. Sorry, let's start again. I worry a lot more about the human overreaction than the disease at this point. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I worry about there being food shortages, not because there are food shortages, because people are overbuying food. Yeah. You know, we don't have enough masks, not because we don't have enough masks, because people who don't need them are hoarding them. And it forces, it changes your behavior. I've talked to friends, especially in New York City, where, you know, obviously, it, you know, access, there's a lot more people and access to goods can be rough. People say, hey, I'm stockpiling just because other people are. Like, if I want toilet paper at all, I have to go behave this way because that's what everybody else is doing. It's flying off the shelves. 
And, and that's a race to the bottom. Yeah. You know, and then as a group, we all lose because the individual self-interest is running contrary to the group interest. Mm. And you see that a lot in cybersecurity. You see that a lot in human, human reactions. And this is why our government coordination has value. But, you know, we don't have a government that's doing much coordination at this point. So right. we we're hoping that uh, spring will lessen it. I think the lessons right now from Singapore and Australia are that they won't. Mm. But we don't know. Uh, you know, we don't actually know a lot about the infection rates and death rates because we're just so under testing. Yeah. We don't have good data yet. There's really so much ignorance. So we just have to prepare for not the worst, but, you know, on the higher end of bad and hope we're wrong. Yeah. But then if we're wrong, people are going to say, well, that was a waste, which is, of course, not the way to think about it. But that's human reaction as well. Do you have a message for folks who are listening to this and getting a little bit frightened, either when it comes to COVID-19 or to security in general? Best practices that you try to tell friends and family members to take in an elevator if you're uh, you got that much time to talk to them? All right. Uh, don't lick the doorknobs, I guess, is first. Uh, you know, in both of those it's often the common things we can do that make the difference and the rest of it's out of our hands. Yeah. Right. For sure. For our computers, uh, make sure you're uh, installing all your patches, have antivirus program, make good backups, right? For the virus, you know, reduce, reduce contact, wash your hands. Yeah. Don't touch your face. If someone has the disease, it's on their hands. Stop shaking hands. <laughs> right. I, I mean, you know, and, and it's those simple things. There's a lot more that we as society can do, but for individuals, it often comes down to basic hygiene. Yeah. Whether it's computer hygiene or personal hygiene. Thank you so much for uh, being on Bruce. It's fascinating to talk to you as always. It's always fun. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thank you once again to Bruce Schneier for being on the show. I want to thank you folks for listening. And I want to thank our producer, Dana Wickens, our engineer, Ryan Connor, our researcher, Sam Roundman, Andrew W.K. for our theme song. You can follow me wherever you like at Adam Conover and send up for my mailing list and check out my tour dates at AdamConover.net. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you again next week. Hey.